I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Natalie Haynes returns to the show to talk about her latest novel, A Thousand Ships. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster. She is the author of The Amber Fury, which was shortlisted for the McIlvenny Prize, The Children of Jocasta, a feminist retelling of the Oedipus and Antigone stories, and a non-fiction book about ancient history, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. She has written and presented four series of the BBC Radio 4 show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. In 2015, she was awarded the Classical Association Prize for her work in bringing classics to a wider audience. And she's also been on Little Atoms no less than eight times. Have I this really? is the eighth time, <laughs> indeed. So you probably recognise some of I've those titles that we've just, <laughs> we've just talked about. And we're going to be talking about today her latest book, which is A Thousand Ships, her third novel. Natalie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I didn't realise I'd been taking over. I am sorry. <laughs> um, it's over, over, a very long, over a very long stretch of time, exactly. we have to say. What was the inspiration for this one? Hmm. I had the idea for writing this when I was walking past the running track um, just north of Regent's Park, and I was walking past the side of it, and it was a quiet afternoon, and I was heading home, I think, and I thought, do you know what would be really cool would be to do the Trojan War, but only from the perspectives of the women, but from the perspectives of, like, all the women, or at least most of the women. And as an idea, I liked it so much, I thought somebody must have done this already. And I felt like I, I felt like I had to hold it really carefully, like carrying eggs all the way home. And I thought, how am I going to... I was sort of frantically Googling, thinking someone must have already done this, somebody must have already done this, and then realised it was mine and I could have it. And I sold it to my publishers when I sold Jocasta. They said, um, we'd like to do a two-book deal. Do you want to write a non-fiction book or a fiction book next? And I said, I'd like to do a novel next, and I want to tell the story of the Trojan War, but I want it to go forwards in time, doing the consequences of the war, and backwards in time, doing the causes of the war, and I want it to change perspective every chapter. And they went... Okay, <laughs> they took it really well. They said, "Can you write us a page?" So I wrote them a page, and then they bought it off the strength of that. So, yeah. So the central idea, I guess, again, is the story of the Trojan War is told from the perspective of the women that are involved. Yes, and there is a lot of this stuff around. Not least your own children of Jocasta <laughs> is, is one of these, but also Pat Barker's done a similar thing, and Madeline Miller, obviously. Yes, um, love Madeline. Margaret Atwood did a similar thing, but. Again, as you said, those books are all told generally from the perspective of a character. Yes. So again, this is 
from multiple perspectives. This is my epic. And it took me a really long time to realise that's what I was doing because obviously when I wrote The Children of Jocasta, I wanted to retell Greek tragedy from the perspectives of the women. I wanted to tell the story of Jocasta because she only has 120 lines in Oedipus Tyrannus and I wanted to tell the story of Ismene because she only has 60 lines in Antigone, the Sophocles plays. But with A Thousand Ships, I wanted to I wanted to take all of the women in, in those epic cycles and put them at the centre instead of at the edges. Brizace, the woman who is the cause of the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon, which animates the entirety of the Iliad because of her, um, because of the mistreatment of her by various men. Achilles withdraws from fighting at the start of the Iliad and he won't return until book 19 of 24. He'll spend 19 books sulking. And, and let's only... just bear in mind that this is supposedly one of the heroes of that book. I mean, he absolutely is the hero of that book. And yet he spends 19 books sulking and complaining to his mother and playing the liar. I have dated that man. He's not that heroic. But she gets 14 lines of dialogue in that whole 24 book poem and they come in book 19 a few dozen lines later a talking horse gets 10 lines just to give you an idea of perspective and so these characters are marginal in the poems that we know really well but they are not actually marginal in the plays which survive from the ancient world so Euripides wrote eight tragedies about the Trojan War um, one of them, the Orestes, I should stop putting an article, it's, such a, it's the classicist thing to do, the whoever. One of them, Orestes, as I should properly say, is focused on a man. Seven of them are about women. Seven of them have women as the title. So for Euripides, the women of the Trojan War are clearly the most interesting thing. I know that we have an unrepresentative sample of every playwright because of so much not surviving, but seven to one implies that he was very strongly focused on the lives of women in that war. And so I don't really feel like it's a particularly revisionist thing to do. I feel like it's just going back and saying, OK, this was once the case and we've allowed these stories to be kind of colonised by guys and they weren't always and they don't have to be. What was the difference in for you in writing this from The Children of Jocasta where you are doing a multiple perspective? How, how differently did it come together, I guess? Um, it was incredibly harrowing at times. There are, I mean, there are recurring characters who were loads of fun. Penelope is a lot of fun. My version of Penelope is really snarky and sarcastic um, and she gets crosser and crosser as the book goes on because obviously she's been waiting and waiting and waiting for this absent husband to return. And every single story she hears about him is sort of increasingly implausible and many of them involve an assortment of dubious women, let's say tactfully. And so some of it was loads of fun. Writing the goddesses was enormous fun because the war is caused at every level by goddesses, by you know Aphrodite or by Eris or by Themis or whoever. So that was loads of fun. But writing the story of the Trojan women in particular was just enormously upsetting. You know, I'd written my dissertation on Hecabe or Hecuba, the Euripides play, so I knew it about as well as I know any play really. And it was still incredibly upsetting to have to do her story, doing the story of Cassandra and how she how she is cursed which is the most horrendous act of sexual violence, was incredibly upsetting. Um, dealing with Andromache and the aftermath of the war for her was as upsetting as anything I've ever written. Um, when I wrote her chapter, I took, I don't know, about five days before I could talk to anybody else. I was so upset by it. <laughs> and when I, when I edited it, I was still the ebbs really, I know. Of all of them. Yeah, I know, because I couldn't... It was, her story is so awful partway through. So I actually had to have her redemptive ending. I mean, I haven't, I haven't invented it. That's one of the many versions of her story which plays out. But, yeah, even when I recorded the audiobook a few weeks ago, I, I cry when I get to that chapter, which I think they've left in. I'm not very professional. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Despite what you've just said about, you know, this is not... It's not a, a particularly radical thing to do. There's always been 
plays built around the women. Yes. You do mention in the afterword a conversation with with a male friend who sort of questioned he do, he this did, idea yeah. about you know the <laughs> the women who are you know left behind to deal with the aftermath while the men go off to fight the war is not as heroic as the men going off to fight the war. And then, I mean, I guess obviously this was just come out, but with the children of Jocasta again, have you found like that position a lot? No, almost not at all. Um, I have to say that my friend is a big fan and I say this with love in my heart of H. Ryder Haggard and me too. But to him, heroes have adventures and that's how we characterise a hero. And I maintain that, you know, this is a 21st century book, so I'm not trying to write a 19th or 20th century book where going off and having adventures is your sole criterion for heroics. I think the act of waiting is one of the most traumatic, torturous things you can ever ask somebody to go through. So to me, the capacity to endure that is as heroic as the capacity to fight. Any day of any week, I would always rather be fighting than enduring or waiting. Um, So to me, that was a very easy call to make. But actually, no, I think most people completely kind of... I'm sure there must be people who will read it with a a less generous mindset, but most people seem to think this is a completely sensible way of looking at, at the world because, you know, why should it be... How do we decide what makes a hero is a really valid question. I wrote my dissertation 150 years ago on the female hero and along the lines set out by Bernard Knox, the great the late and great classical scholar, um, that kind of Sophoclean hero, although I wrote my dissertation on Euripidean ones, of a sort of extremist character, somebody who has a positive quality taken to a negative degree, is an incredibly potent one. So by that rationale, then Medea and Hecabe are both heroes, but they both act with incredible violence against children, which is something that we, a modern audience, might find, usually do find, let's be honest, upsetting to the point of refusing to allow that as a description of them. If you watch almost any production of Medea now, they almost always, not always, but almost always make her insane at the end. That's not in the Greek, but I think they feel, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, that a modern audience would struggle to see a woman kill her own children and not be mad. And this is because it's a woman, because right. the men go around killing children as a matter mm. of course. I mean, that's just Yeah, you don't ever see that explanation there. for um, Heracles killing his own children. You know, the idea of women who kill their children is something which we find incredibly upsetting because it seems to go against nature. But men killing children, well, especially even their own children, you know, these things happen, seems to be the kind of subtextual reasoning. And so, you know, just asking the question of, of what makes a hero seemed to me a really important one because obviously Menelaus, for example, the husband of Helen, is a terrible hero. He's so rubbish at fighting that when the opportunity of having a a duel with Hector comes up in, I've forgotten which book of the Iliad, um, is it six or seven, seven maybe, um, the the Greeks are all like, yeah, mate, I mean, if if you want to volunteer, yeah, it's really clear in Homer that they don't think he's much of a fighter. When he finally stands his ground after Patroclus has been killed, he's trying to save his body from being taken and, and ruined. It's worth a whole book of its own. You know, Fagels, in his translation, gives him the chapter title. It's like Menelaus makes a stand or Menelaus great stand or whatever, I can't remember. And, you know, it's sort of worthy of remark. Agamemnon is incredibly petulant. He makes terrible decisions over and over again. Odysseus, the most dangerous place in Greek myth is next to Odysseus. The only Ithacan to make it home from the Trojan War is Odysseus. Literally all his men are killed by his stupid decisions on his journey home. He's a terrible hero. He wouldn't get home if it weren't for the goddess Athene. And yet we have no problem seeing these men with all their flaws as heroes. And so I guess I kind of wanted to ask the question, well, what makes them heroic? Is it the act of lifting a blade, in which case Hecabe is just as much of a hero, isn't she? I mean, she certainly does that. Is it, you know, the act of fighting on the battlefield, in which case where's Penthesilea? Why have we forgotten her story? Is it the act of endurance? Is it the act of... And so on, you know... Achilles spends 19 books behaving essentially 
in a domestic sphere. He opts out of battle and lives the life that the women of his camp are leading. And we don't ever question his heroics. So, you know, and then and he turns on his own side and begs his mother, the goddess uh, Thetis, to turn the tide of the war against him. He's a traitor to the Greek cause. We never question his heroics. It's like, well, OK, then I'm going to ask that question and I'm going to offer an answer. You could not like it, but I, I think it warrants being answered with something. And I must say, stabbing the man who murdered your children, which happens, you know, a number of times, a couple of times in this book, <laughs> seems to be more heroic than stabbing a one-eyed man in the eye. As absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you invade the poor Cyclops's island, you try and nick his sheep, you know, you pitch it, and then it's like, okay, so that's the act of generosity, so that's the heroic act, blinding a one-eyed man, and the land of the blind, the wait. It's not a very heroic act. Clytemnestra waiting for Agamemnon to come home, a man who had tricked and then killed her their daughter. I could not... Killing Agamemnon was the easiest day's work I've ever done. It really was. I hated him for so long. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be great. So, yes, there are some, I think, very heroic... My version of Odysseus is actually quite a lot nicer, I think, and impishly clever. Um, so he is a real Odyssey Odysseus rather than a Greek tragedy Odysseus, and certainly rather than an Iliad Odysseus, because I enjoyed making him you know, slightly impish. And I very much enjoyed writing a Penelope that would match him. I, the idea of this sort of staid woman waiting for him. It's like, oh, do me a favour. Look how clever he is. Look how potentially naughty he can be. Of course she's going to be amazing. Who else would he fall in love with? We'll come back to Penelope because I want to go through, in the second part, go through some of the, the major characters. Um, before we get there, can we talk about, as we normally say, another major character in the book, <laughs> which is the city Troy. Yes. Um, writing that city, describing it and setting it in, because I know you've set it in an actual you know, landscape where, yes. we, where we think it might have been, yes. or certainly some people think it might have been. Tell us something about writing the city. I followed Schliemann, which I do see as a very controversial thing to do, uh, because he was such a controversial archaeologist. But he cited Troy, believed that Troy was at a place called Hisalik in Turkey. And there are plenty of people who will argue that that's not the case, as there are plenty of people who will spend their entire, literally their entire professional lives, trying to work out the route that Odysseus took home from Troy. It's like, dude, it's a poem. <laughs> I just don't know what to say to you. There may not be a real route. And yeah, I was going to say, possibly a, a stupid question, but is is there a real Troy? I don't I mean, know. We... I mean, I don't feel completely... Co- I think so. I mean, yes. there's obviously an Athens, right? There is obviously there. an Athens. Yes, there is and was Athens. And the problem, I suppose, is that the Trojan War happens in sort of late 13th, early 12th century BCE, so like 700 years before the time mm. of Athens that we know about. And like I've been to Ephesus, right, which is right. obviously, you know, a, a site that already exists. Yeah, and we definitely know that there's, that Bronze Age civilization happens at Hisalik and at uh, Mycenae and at Tiryns, which is the, you know, Mycenae for Agamemnon and Tiryns, the legendary home for Heracles slash Hercules. Schliemann was so obsessed with the idea of finding the real historic Troy, that he dug right through the Troy. There are multiple cities on top of each other, of course, which always makes me think of that bit in Monty Python, uh, where he's you know built his castle and then it <laughs> burns down and then it sinks into a swamp and so on and so on. But anyway, there are multiple Troys. And he dug right through. I've forgotten which Troy was the right one, but he made it down to about Troy 2. So he went right through the appropriate one. And so for me, yes, I think there is that. There is certainly some kind of conflict. There is certainly some kind of connection to this place. So I think that I don't I, I would be stretching it to say I think the Trojan War was fought as described by Homer over a beautiful woman. I don't. But I think that Troy is real. I think the conflict between East and West is not new. I don't think there was a talking horse. 
I'm sad that I think there probably wasn't a talking horse, but, you know, we've all wished for a talking horse. I can understand how that could happen. Um, so talk about reconstructing the city then in the book, because, well, I say reconstructed it, but I suppose... Constructing it, really. Burning it down. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, no, I do do that. Um, yeah, no, it was quite... I mean, I've, I looked very hard at the landscape and the... I mean, obviously, once you can find the plants and the animals that are around there, that really helps because you can kind of get a sense of it and the smell of it and the sound of it. And once you've got the cicadas and, you know, the birds and things, that really helps. And following the kind of sight lines down to the shore and working out where you would keep the you know Greek fleet and all of those things that made a big difference. But yeah, the city itself, I had to I had to build it and then yes, and then burn it down. <laughs> I still feel really bad about. It. I've got a friend who makes big budget films. I'm always like, why can't everyone just have a nice house? Why do you have to always knock it down and set it on fire and have aliens destroy it? And now I'm exactly as bad, but in the ancient world. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listeners of Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natalie Haynes and we're talking about her latest novel, A Thousand Ships. And Natalie, I said we were going to talk about some of the characters. And to begin with, let's talk about Calliope, who yes. I guess narrates it. I mean, she kind of does. But also she seems to be a stand-in for yourself. Yeah, she is a bit. Yeah, her and Penelope have both got more than a touch of me to them, I think it's fair to say. But yeah, no, I think it had always kind of bothered me that it's presented as a a truism, that the first person mentioned in, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad is 
the hero, right? So, and in the Odyssey, that's true. And in the Iliad, it isn't true. The first line of the Iliad is, men in Aeda thea peleadu achilleos, rage, oh, of course. sing, goddess, son of Peleus, Achilles. And so it's like, yes, this poem is all about Achilles. And yes, he is the son of Peleus, but he is not the first person mentioned. The first person mentioned is Thea, the goddess. And she is presumably perhaps the same person as the muse, Musa, mentioned in the first line of the Odyssey. And that's Calliope or Calliope, depending on how you prefer to say it, who is the muse of epic poetry. When it's Virgil's poem, when he writes the Aeneid, he's quite open about who's in charge. He says, arma virumque cano, I sing of arms and the man. But Homer says, sing goddess, sing muse. And so it's it's her story. Even even the Iliad is hers. He can't tell it without her help. And I thought, you know, one, I think that often gets overlooked because she isn't named. And two, it's quite peremptory, isn't it, the way he says that? And so that's how I wanted to start the book. I really wanted her to have her chance to go a little bit and um, make her her side of it known. And in doing that, though, Homer, obviously, in terms of, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad here, and obviously you do include Calliope talking to the poet in this book as well. But again, there's nothing new under the sun. He's basically inserted himself into the story as well. He's, he has. becomes a character in the story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Homer is a character throughout the Odyssey, that, you know, bards are always turning up and it's a good sign of a person if they treat a bard really well and let them have extra wine and rations and things. You're like, who's talking here just out of interest? And, you know, Odysseus is routinely dis- disguises himself as a bard and you know tells the story of his exploits from a third-person perspective. And so you get this kind of metatextuality in the Odyssey of who, who's Homer telling us about? Who's this story really about? Is it, It's a story about storytelling, which is obviously very alluring to writers, but it's also about the life of that rhapsode, the poet travelling around, singing for their supper, literally and metaphorically. And so I felt, again, well, if, if it's good enough for Homer, I guess it's good enough for me. I suppose a cat can look on a king, right? So let's, you know how fond I am of cats. Indeed, indeed. Let's look at Penelope then, who we mentioned in the first parts and you chose to present Penelope differently from yes. the other characters in the story in that it's I can never pronounce it what is it she's Epi- epistolary epistolary yeah, yeah yes. she's writing letters to Odysseus yes. Um, yeah, I nicked that from Ovid, as you say, nothing new under the sun. So Ovid wrote a collection called the Heroides of letters from abandoned women to their absent husbands or menfolk. And I love these poems. I just love them. And I have always wanted to do more with them, do something with them. I did a, a letter from uh, Eurydice for Radio four a couple of years ago from Eurydice in the underworld to Orpheus and I loved writing it loved writing that first person perspective and so I really really wanted to do Odysseus's story as he comes home from the war but I didn't want to make the story focused on a man because this story was was from the women's perspectives and I thought this is the perfect way of overlapping those two things I love the Herodes I really want to tell his story and I, originally I was going to do it from the perspectives of the women the many many women he has dalliances with on the way home and I thought I'll be able to do like a beautiful song from the sirens I'll be able to do Circe I'll be able to do Calypso I'll be able to do Scylla and Charybdis and then I thought actually I want all of those things to be refracted through the the eyes of of Penelope I want her to be waiting at home because we have this idea of her as that she's presented throughout the ancient world actually in mythic terms as this sort of paragon of virtue that she is always so good with her weaving and her waiting and her chastity and I was like well what if she's not that good what if she's actually quite badly behaved on the quiet 
and that's the woman that he loves. What if? And so, yeah, writing her was tremendous fun, not least because she gets crosser and crosser as the letters go on. So the first one begins, my darling husband. And then by about the third, she's like, husband. <laughs> by the last one, she's like, oi! She's getting really, really bored. Because, of course, every story that comes back, he has had a dalliance with somebody else. And there are moments in there where I just couldn't believe it when I found um, the bit where he gets to the underworld. I think it's book 11 of the Odyssey. And he sees his mother. He hasn't realised until that point that his mother is dead. And he sees his mother and he says... I you put the questions in the exact order there in the Odyssey. He says, you know, how's my son? How's my father? How's my palace? How's my kingdom? Like the ninth thing he how's remembers to ask about is, <laughs> how's my wife? And so it was so easy to have her say, right, I'm fine. Did you remember me before you asked about the dog? You know, it was just, she was just so angry. And so exaggerating it the tiny bits by putting, because, you know, the dog dying when he returns to Ithaca is one of the most famous tearjerkers in all of ancient literature. So clearly putting the dog in was uh, was an absolute open goal for me. But yeah, I didn't have to do anything. And the moment where he says to Calypso, Calypso offers him eternal life. And as far as I know, it's the only time in all of myth that anybody says no to it. Um, she says, yeah, be my consort and I'll give you eternal life. And he says, no, I need to go home to my wife. And I would rather stay with you in some ways because you're much prettier than she is. But I'm just like, dude, stop talking. <laughs> You've literally just rejected eternal life to get back to your wife. That's crazy romantic. Do not then follow up with, she's not as hot as you. What's wrong with you? But it's right there in the Odyssey. I was like, I cannot resist this. There's, well, we can, I guess we could talk about these as a group because they are in, in the book. So yes. there's... There are chapters that are headed the the Trojan women. Yes. So these are the wives and daughters of various Trojan men who have been, you know, killed or whatever in the yeah. in the battle, basically waiting to be to be divvied up, to be yeah. enslaved and divvied up. Yeah, to be separated from one another, taken from their city, and and then involved in forced marriage and rape for the rest of their lives. Yes, I mean it was they were really difficult chapters to write often and uh, for ages. Uh, obviously Hecabe has a fantastic plot for revenge ahead of her so she was, you know, vicious though it is. It was, you know, relatively easier to write. But Cassandra and Andromache um and Polyxena, you know, there isn't a there isn't a nice ending for their stories really although you know Andromache gets the closest thing to a happy ending that this book probably can offer I want to talk about Cassandra in in more detail she's I think my favorite character in it the way you she? she's mine too yeah I miss her such a lot yeah the way that you've you've sort of represented what happens to her as you said first of all as you know a, a terrible scene of sexual violence but then just the you know the way that you portray the visions that she has and her sort of dealing with you know what I guess is the metaphor for some form of mental illness yes. is really great. Tell us more about her. Thank you. I mean, I think it's the great. I think it is one of the greatest, cruelest curses mm. in all of literature because she is destined to see the truth, destined to see the future, which is horrible in itself. Which is horrific. And no matter what she says, no one believes her. So she is instantly isolated on multiple counts. Everyone she meets, she knows how they will die and when, which means she is dealing with perpetual and constantly renewed grief. And nobody can hear what she says. So writing her was enormously stressful at times because that's a, the isolation that she experiences is just so utter and so brutal. But I was absolutely determined that she wouldn't be, in my version anyway, mad 
you know, that people might think she was mad, but actually she is the only person who can see it. And being alive at this particular point in time, it feels like there are quite a lot of us who feel like we're just going, no, but if you do this, this will happen. No, but if you do this, this will happen. And then feeling slightly unheard. So she feels very much like a character for our moment in history, I think. But telling her story again, there are moments where I thought, I can't believe this is in the text and I just haven't kind of noticed it before. In the Agamemnon, in the Aeschylus play Agamemnon, when she gets to Agamemnon's home, and he, she knows perfectly well, of course, that he is about to be killed by his wife, by Clytemnestra, and she starts talking and the chorus in the play, I changed it and made it Clytemnestra because the chorus of old men who are so relevant in the in the Aeschylus are, are obviously just kind of bit part players for me. And, you know, choruses are like half of an Aeschylus play because it's the very start of drama and how it's developing. And I think as as modern readers and indeed watchers of, of drama, we find them less relevant and, and less easy to relate to. But she, she starts talking and they, they believe her. And I, I couldn't get past her. I was thinking, just imagine what it must have been like to be disbelieved for your whole adult life. And then suddenly you say things exactly the way you say them every single day and somebody just hears what you say. And that the potency of being heard, of being understood, was just remarkable. I mean, it was it was the weirdest thing because I was writing it around about the time that the Me Too story was breaking and we we're having all these kind of editorials quite rightly saying, you know, women's voices are now being heard. I'm still not sure how much women's voices are being heard. But it, it was just a remarkable kind of moment to say, God, yeah, this is what it would be like that you had had to keep your silence for all this time. And my Cassandra isn't silent. She talks all the time, but she has to do it quietly because otherwise she just gets hurt, physically injured by somebody who is exasperated by what they see as her kind of gibbering. And then suddenly she's heard. And I thought that would be such a redemptive moment for her that actually her death wouldn't wouldn't seem as bad after that. And so I loved writing her. I miss her all the time. I miss her every day. I realise that sounds insane. I'm sorry. Some of those major characters that are major characters in this book, but also they are the ones that have had, you know, plays written about them. And I want to talk about a couple of the, well, to me, characters I had not heard of yes. before. No, there are loads that um, even I was struggling with at times. I was like, um, wow, how did I not know about you? Leia Damir. Yes. Uh, who is she? Laodamia is the wife of Protesilaus, and Protesilaus isn't a proper name. Um, Protesilaus means the first one. I find it impossible to say it in my head without hearing the Morrissey lyrics, the first of the gang to die. Um, Because he literally is. I know, because he's literally the first of the Greeks to die. Um, And so he is, again, there's an Ovid poem from Laodamia to her absent husband, Protesilaus. He is the first Greek to jump off his ship and land on the beach at Troy, and he's killed by Hector. He is the first Greek to die. And she is his queen, waiting at home for him to come home and of course he doesn't and they have there's this incredibly beautiful and romantic and heartbreaking story there are two versions actually one is that her grief is so great that the gods that it's like an Orpheus and Eurydice story the gods allow him to return but just for one day Um, and then he has to go back to the underworld and there's another version which is like a, a version of the Pygmalion story but really interestingly gendered the opposite way around either way in which there's a statue of him which comes to life because she she grieves so much so either way it's an incredibly romantic story and her grief is absolutely overwhelming so much so that the gods who are famously unconcerned about human issues and grief and pain 
even they are, are softened in their approach to her. And so I, I wasn't necessarily expecting that chapter to be allowed to stay. I wrote it into the first draft and thought, you know, they'll just tell me there are too many kind of standalone chapters and it feels too much like short stories and, you know, they'll be worried that it doesn't have a kind of coherent thing. And then I absolutely needn't have worried. I was certain they'd make me cut it. And then they're like, oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but Protesilaus, if you want to see him, you can go to the British Museum because they have a statue, which might not be Protesilaus, but certainly when Laodemir in my book has her vision of Protesilaus in the moments before he dies that's what she is seeing she is seeing the statue that's in the British Museum it's very meta text I realise and he has the most beautiful feet the statue and they're balanced on the prow of a ship and he's so ready to jump he's got these incredible athletic feet he's so ready to jump off he's so desperate to get there get underway and then get home to her and of course it's that eagerness which which costs him his life and so you know there aren't there's, it's, it's unusual for me to do a sort of straight up romantic tragedy but that chapter is exactly that because she's just it's just so sad and I wanted to have maybe one just one and it's even in the context of the Heroides the Ovid collection of of letters poetic letters it's unusual because you know most of these women are angry for excellent reasons in the case of Medea or Ariadne um, Laodome it's, it's just it's straight up romance and for somebody as cynical as Ovid usually is as a writer you know there's no cynicism there they just have a really beautiful marriage which is is brought to a untimely end by death and then I can't even read my writing now so I'm, I'm going to guess it's Penthesilea to... yes it is ha <laughs> I win <laughs> So she's an Amazon. She is. She's the sister of Hippolyta, um, who is probably the most famous Amazon to us because of her position in the Heracles, Hercules stories. Wonder Woman. Um, exactly. And Penthesilea comes and fights at the very end of the war. So after the Iliad, if we're doing the chronology of the war, she would appear in a poem which doesn't survive called the Aethiopis. We have a few fragments of it in like Quintus Manaeus or somebody like that, I think. And she turns up to fight as an ally to Priam and she fights Achilles and she dies, which makes her exactly the same as every single other person who fights Achilles in the Iliad. It makes her exactly as heroic as Hector. In fact, a bit more heroic because he, let's remind ourselves, when he um, is faced with single combat with Achilles, runs away. He literally runs away until the goddess Athene comes down in disguise as one of his friends and says, you know, turn and fight and I'll stand by you. And he says, OK, great. And he turns and stops and, and she disappears and he realises he's been tricked and he's about to die. But Penthesilea is, is braver than that. Um, you know, she turns up to, to fight. And her story has just been lost to us because the Aethiopis, the epic poem which included her, doesn't survive. And unfortunately for us, I was going to say the most famous, but infamous is probably closer, version of her story is in uh, Robert Graves. Uh, so the first half of the 20th century. And in Graves, he robs her of all this incredible warrior prowess. You know, the ancient world, they're obsessed with Amazons. They're the second most popular mythological character to appear on Greek vases. The most popular is Heracles. Um, the second most popular, Amazons. So there's definitely some kind of pervy, exoticizing fetish. Oh, women fighting, exciting. Fair enough. But they definitely like them. And then they just disappear for us. And then Graves comes along and thinks, do you know what would be better about this story? Is if she wasn't a warrior queen, but if Achilles wanked over her corpse. And you go, wait, what? <laughs> How's that helped? And so reclaiming Penthesilea was absolutely, it was like, that was always going to happen. It's like, she is so badass. You know, she's such an athlete. She's such a warrior. And yes, she, she is, again, it's one of the kind of pure love stories in this book. But her love is for her dead sister. It's not for... A man, I'm afraid. So where does that even come from? So, I mean, I said earlier that, like, you know, killing the, 
the children of the people you'd vanquished was like the perfectly normal thing that they did, but was like masturbating over their corpses the thing that they did. As I mean, well. nobody mentions it happening over Patroclus, does it? It's one of those really interesting Which points. Which probably should. I right? mean, statistically, <laughs> you've got to think his chances of getting wanked over while dead were higher than Penthesilea's, is all I'm saying. But yeah, I mean, it is absolutely gross, isn't it? But. You know, there are versions of her story where um, Achilles is in love with her or, or falls in love with her as she dies. So sort of weird love at first sight, love at first death kind of thing. It's like, yeah, that's still a couple of steps short of wanking over her corpse, though, isn't it? I mean, it's still just a little bit before that. So, yeah, no, I felt like she had been so badly served by history. There was no way I wasn't going to claim her back because she should be, you know, she should, and it's, a, it's, it's a terrible loss that we don't have the Ethiopians because it means that we lose her story. And that of Memnon, the great Ethiopian warrior hero who fights for Troy as well. And that when you have to spend so much time defending classics against being pale, male and stale, which is its perpetual accusation, it's like, well, it, it isn't. And it certainly doesn't have to be. But it's frustrating that, you know, that one poem which could have immediately given us a hero who isn't pale and a hero who isn't male is one that we've lost. Maybe one more. And then I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book, if you would. Should we bother talking about Helen? We should always bother talking about Helen, even though Calliope won't, because she's so cross with her. Yeah, um, Helen is such an enigma, because right from the very earliest versions of her story, we don't know who she is, and we don't know what happens to her. And that's true of virtually everybody in Greek myth, to be fair. They're always contrasting myths. But Helen is a really interesting one, because even her parentage is contested. Mostly we think it's Zeus and Leda, who is a mortal woman, the queen of Sparta. But there's one version of her myth where her mother is Nemesis, the goddess Nemesis. She's born from an egg, which is relatively unusual. And then, you know, everybody knows that she is responsible for the Trojan War because she elopes with Paris, except that dating back to at least the mid-8th century, so as old as Homer or older, there's a version of her story where she doesn't go to Troy. She doesn't elope with Paris. She goes to Egypt, lives out the war completely blamelessly. And it's an Adelon, an image of her that goes to Troy and that everyone fights over. At the end of the war, they realise the Greeks, you know, reclaim her and she literally disappears. They realise they've been fighting over her heir. It's the perfect metaphor for the futility of war, I guess. But my version, she is in Troy and she is co-responsible for the war. And she is really powerful because she's the daughter of Zeus. And we should be scared of her, a little scared of her, because she has maybe not the um, potency of beauty, of attractiveness that Aphrodite has, where, you know, she can weaponize that beauty and, and, you know, you would jump off a cliff in a heartbeat. But she's not far short of that. And so I wanted her to be capable of using that as a weapon and properly to be frightening. When Odysseus tries to be snarky with her, she scares him. And I wanted that to be possible. But I also didn't want to get too bogged down in the notion of her incredible beauty and uh, and that being the only kind of redemptive thing about her. What's so interesting in the versions of her that we have in Euripides, for example, is how articulate he makes her. She has an incredible speech in the Trojan Women and an incredible monologue at the start of his play, Helen. And both versions, you think, God, Menelaus never had a chance. You know, he's only ever presented as a sort of slightly stupid drunk. And I thought really hard about having Helen's story play out as it does in the Odyssey in this book and in the end I kind of had to let it go because it's so mad the version in the Odyssey I thought I can't have this I don't want it to be a focal thing and I can't throw it away because I think a modern readership would just find it bad shit that when Telemachus gets to Sparta in I think it's book four of the Odyssey he's asking where his father might be and he asks Menelaus and Helen, you know, what they remember of him from during the war. And Menelaus starts crying when he remembers his fallen comrades. And Helen doesn't say anything at all to him. She just calls a slave and has her bring a bag of 
of drugs which she has been sent from Egypt from a woman called Polydamna, I think. And she doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. She just puts these drugs in the wine and serves them up. And um, the drugs are, according to Homer, nepenthes is the word in Greek, which means grief banishing. And Homer spends about 10 lines, nearly as much as Briseis gets to say in the whole of the Iliad. He spends about 10 lines telling us that you could see your parents die and you'd feel fine if you'd taken these drugs, that you could see your own child cut down with spears and you'd be fine. That's how powerful they are. And, you know, dress it up as you want. I couldn't find a way of saying Helen lives out her years basically giving Menelaus Rohypnol every night until they die. It was just too weird. So I, in the end, I, I let her go off into the sunset and let people imagine what happened to her because I didn't want the Homeric end to be the version that they, they had in their minds in the end. Could I get you to read us a bit then? So I'll read you the very beginning of the book, which is Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, trying to decide whether or not she's going to help out a poet. Sing, muse, he says, and the edge in his voice makes it clear that this is not a request. If I were minded to accede to his wish, I might say that he sharpens his tone on my name like a warrior drawing his dagger across a whetstone, preparing for the morning's battle. But I'm not in the mood to be a muse today. Perhaps he hasn't thought of what it is like to be me. Certainly he hasn't. Like all poets, he thinks only of himself. But it is surprising that he hasn't considered how many other men there are like him, every day, all demanding my unwavering attention and support. How much epic poetry does the world really need? Every conflict joined, every war fought, every city besieged, every town sacked, every village destroyed, every impossible journey, every shipwreck, every homecoming. These stories have all been told, and countless times. Can he really believe he has something new to say? And does he think he might need me to help him keep track of all his characters or to fill those empty moments where the metre doesn't fit the tale? I look down and see that his head is bowed and his shoulders, though broad, are sloped. His spine has begun to curve at the top. He is old, this man, older than his hard-edged voice suggests. I'm curious. It's usually the young for whom poetry is such an urgent matter. I crouch down to see his eyes closed for a moment with the intensity of his prayer. I cannot recognise him while they are shut. He is wearing a beautiful gold brooch, tiny leaves wrought into a gleaming knot. So someone has rewarded him handsomely for his poetry in the past. He has talent, and he has prospered, no doubt with my assistance, but still he wants more, and I wish I could see his face properly in the light. I wait for him to open his eyes, but I have already made up my mind. If he wants my help... He will make an offering for it. That is what mortals do. First they ask, then they beg, finally they bargain. So I will give him his words when he gives me that brooch. So I've been talking to Natalie Haynes about her latest novel, A Thousand Ships, which is out now in the UK for Mantle Books. Natalie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. It's my absolute pleasure. It's always my pleasure. Eight times. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.